Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books. And this week I'm very, very, very pleased to have Tevi Troy on the show, and he's written a terrific book called What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. For those of you who regularly listen to the New Books Network, you may recognize Tevi Troy's name. He is the one-time host of New Books in Public Policy, and he was a terrific host. He's moved on to other other things right Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books. And this week I'm very, very, very pleased to have Tevi Troy on the show, and he's written a terrific book called What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. For those of you who regularly listen to the New Books Network, you may recognize Tevi Troy's name. He is the one-time host of New Books in Public Policy, and he was a terrific host. He's moved on to other other things right now. Tevi, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me on, and I'm thrilled to get ver- three varies. Very, 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 very. You got three. No one else has ever gotten three. I th- Tevi, could you begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, I have a PhD in American Studies from the University of Texas at Austin. I got that degree because I started working in Washington right after college, and I saw that you need a graduate degree to get anywhere in Washington, and I saw a lot of people working at think tanks. I worked at a think tank. Uh, they had advanced degrees, but they'd also worked in government, so I went to do those things. I got the PhD from Austin. I took a lot of classes at the LBJ School, including with Elspeth Rostow, who was an expert on the presidency, and I, I learned a lot about the presidency from her. And then I moved to Washington, and I started working in politics. I worked in the House, in the Senate, and then I ended up working in the White House on the, the Domestic Policy Council, and I was later appointed and confirmed as the Deputy Secretary of Health. In that period, I also converted my dissertation into a book, and the book was Intellectuals and the American Presidency, Philosophers, Jesters, or Technicians. It was a history of intellectuals who served in the White House. Think about Arthur Schlesinger or Pat Moynihan and what they did and how they tried to bring ideas into the White House. So I have this background as someone who is both a presidential historian but also someone who has worked in the White House and understands how it works over there. So I kind of brought those two things together. After I left government, I went over to the Hudson Institute, where I am now and where I was happy to be for a time, the host of New Books and Public Policy. Mm-hmm. And you're a great raconteur. Can I say oh, that? Yeah, you really <laughs> are. You're very stories. funny. You're very funny. Yeah, you're a very funny guy. So um, why did you write this book? Why did, why did you write um, what Jefferson read, I watched, and uh, Obama tweeted. Did I get the title right? I think I did. You, you did, yeah, and yeah, okay. um, there, there's a shorthand for the website, which is www.whatjeffersonread.com. Okay. All right. But I, I had this background, as I said, as both a presidential historian but someone who has also worked in the White House. So I was very interested in continuing my work in presidential history. And following up on intellectuals, I wrote something for the Washington Post about what presidents have read over time and what it tells us about them. And then – 
Washingtonian magazine asked me to write something about what movies presidents have watched. And I, had, I went someplace once where I had to give something like five speeches in, in three days. And so I just combined those two topics and gave it as one speech. And someone who was in the audience, happened to be my brother, heard me give the speech and he said, this is a fantastic idea. You should write a book about it. <laughs> and so that's it. And I even acknowledged my brother Dan in the acknowledgments for, for coming up with the idea or, or helping me come up with the idea. And so then you know how it is in, in book world. You, you have an idea, but you want to make sure you can get it published. So I went to get an agent, and it seems to me these days you can't even look to get a book contract unless you have an agent. That's so I spent right. time finding an agent. That took months. Yes. And then once I had an agent, it took months to find the uh, the, the publisher, who's, who's Regnery. And uh, you know they say a lot of editors these days don't actually edit the book. They're more acquirers. Yeah. They acquire a book, and then they, you know, they, they take you out to lunch, and that's it. My editor never took me out to lunch, but he really edited. But he really edited the book, and he sharpened the language, and he tightened it up. And so, I mean, he did what an editor is supposed to do, not what the editors seem. What any editors seem to do today. Can so. we get Tevi some lunch, please? Can we? Can, yeah. can we get Tevi lunch? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so that's how how the book came together. It. it took about a year to write mm -hmm. and now uh, a year to go through the editing process and the footnotes and all, all that. But mm -hmm. now, now it's out and September is going to be a very busy month in terms of promotions. But this is my first launch wow! and I'm happy to do it at New wow! Books Network. How do you like that? We broke news. I don't think we've ever done that on the New Books Network. Round breaking no, network. Never. Exactly. That's exactly right. We've never broken news before, but I'm so pleased about it. So, Tevi, here's a question I always like to ask. Uh, the people I interview, and I usually don't do it in these terms, but since I love you, I'm going <laughs> I'm to ask you uh, the question, as it always appears in my mind, why should we care about what popular culture, what impact popular culture has on the president? Well, it's a fantastic question, and, and there's two reasons to it. There's a sort of less serious answer and a more serious answer. The less serious answer is Americans love popular culture. We're very interested. I want to know what movies you're watching, Marshall, and I want to know what movies Obama is watching. And that, that's kind of our, our shared currency. Yeah, it's true. In fact, it's our number one product these days, yeah. and it's one of the few things where we have a positive balance of trade. So <laughs> Americans just seem to be inherently interested in that. And over time, when, when you and I grew up in the 70s, if something was on Happy Days, everybody knew it, right? Happy Days was kind of the, the shared TV show that everybody watched or all in the family. I, mean, I, some, still, some, I still dress like the Fonz. Yeah, You've never I mean, met me in person, have you? But I actually dress like the Fonz. No, something that happened yeah. on TV in the 70s was kind of a, a shared moment, or even in the 50s with, um, with, with I Love Lucy. But we have become a much more segmented society since then, thanks to the Internet and pay cable and YouTube. Not everybody watches everything. There are very f few shared phenomena anymore in America. And one of the few shared phenomena, one of our few cultural touchstones is the president. Mm -hmm. And that's why everybody wants to know what the president is watching. There's also an economic factor. You've seen those pictures of a president walking to Air Force One or Marine One holding a book in their hand. Mm -hmm. And then that book shoots up the, the bestseller list. Mm -hmm. It recently happened with President Obama when he got the book Freedom by Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. He got the book before it was even available. Wow. And it set off this frenzy all over the Internet and people were dying to get copies of the book. The book became a huge bestseller. But it's happened before. Tom Clancy credited Ronald Reagan with making him, transforming him from an unknown insurance salesman into a best-selling author. Mm -hmm. And because Reagan tout, touted that book. And, it, and uh, if you go even further back, John F. Kennedy 
seem to like the James Bond books. Really? And that make those books very popular. Uh, now, Arthur Schlesinger says it was a little overstated and that Kennedy really didn't quite love them as much, but they liked the fact that Kennedy liked this tough hero who was representing for the Western side in the Cold War. So there's, been, there's, a, there's an economic aspect to it. There's a policy aspect to it. President Clinton read the book Balkan Ghosts in the 1990s. Yep. And that – it's by, by Robert Kaplan. And that kind of discouraged him from intervening in Bosnia. Now, he eventually listened to his military advisors and his foreign policy advisors and went forward with the intervention. But he dithered for a long time because he had read that book, which talked about how ethnic hatreds in the Balkans exist for thousands of years and you're not going to be able to save them. Mm-hmm. Kaplan, when he was asked about it, was shocked that a president would be reading his book and, and shaping policy based on what was said in his book. <laughs> but, but it does have an impact. You know, another yeah. famous instance is the war on poverty. Kennedy supposedly read uh, Harrington's book, The Other America. Oh, yeah. Right. I read that. Uh, Harrington. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people read it. I mean, if you were in grad school, you had to read it. Right. Yeah. But everybody was a socialist back then. Though, so right. it's okay. And so, so Harrington's book was reviewed in The New Yorker. And so I don't think Kennedy actually read the Harrington book, but he did read a very famous review, maybe the longest review in New Yorker history by mm. Dwight McDonald. Mm. He read that and he said, let's see if we can put together an anti-poverty program. Obviously, he was tragically assassinated. It never happened. Mm. But Johnson heard about this and said, this is the kind of program I can get behind. Right. And so that is what led to the war on poverty. So there's an economic aspect. There's a policy aspect. And then the third and the last reason is presidents convey aspects of leadership through what they are ingesting in the popular culture. So some presidents try to show their intellectual side. Bill Clinton was very good at this. Kennedy used to do it. Some presidents try to relate to the common man by the TV they're watching. So Eisenhower would sit with Mamie and they'd watch I Love Lucy with TV dinners in front of them and they kind of related to the American. Really? I had yeah. no idea. TV and Obama, oh. Obama watches a ton of TV. Does he? And he kind of talks about it and he watches a sort of hip kind of pay cable TV. Mm-hmm. So he likes The Wire, Mad Men, yeah. Boardwalk Empire. Mm-hmm. And he talks about these shows. In Homeland, he says, uh, Jonathan Alter's new book says that there have been times when Obama would go into his office, close the door, say he's doing work, pretend he's doing work, but actually be watching old episodes of Homeland. Him too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't so, know. Yeah. So, so uh, hey, presidents can convey that they're sort of regular guys that way. Yeah, sure. And then through the movies, you can show a larger-than-life aspect. So Ronald Reagan, obviously, was uh, – he, he made his name through his, his movies. That's how he mm-hmm. originally – became famous, but they can also identify with movies. When, um, uh, when there was a hostage crisis in the 80s, Reagan said, uh, I saw Rambo last night and I'll know what to do next time. Oh, boy. So they kind of show that the, they, they kind of relate to the American people, but also show this grand vista of America. And Reagan very well understood the language of the movies and, and could relate mm-hmm. to the American people through that language. Mm-hmm. So th- those are the three big reasons why mm-hmm. you and I and anyone else should care. Yeah, well, that's a compelling case. So uh, I want to spend most of our time on the modern period, um, mostly because I want to find out what presidents watched and listened to, because I want to see how far off base I am, or maybe how on base I am. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the um, revolutionary era and the, uh, the, the, uh, and the 19th century. Let's begin by talking about uh, Jefferson, I suppose, uh, or people of his era. Now, these guys were readers. There was no television, radio, no movies. So uh, why did they read and what did they read? 
Well, first of all, you mentioned a really important point, that there was no television, there was no radio, there, there were no electronic media back then. So no. the choices you had if you wanted some type of entertainment were two. One was books, and the other was some kind of live performance. Right, theater. Theater, right. most especially theater. And I have a yeah. whole chapter on uh-huh. 19th century theater and how important it was. But Jefferson and Adams in particular, were two of the best-read people in the entire continent. Actually, Adams uh, never even saw a play until he went to Europe, so it wasn't very big in Puritan mm. Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but America did become, eventually become a theater place. But Adams and Jefferson were huge readers, and they read serious stuff. They read philosophy. They read law. They read history. And they really read the classics they read about the Roman period. And they identified with the Roman Republicans in their struggle against uh, Julius Caesar and, and the mm-hmm. uh, development of, of an empire. Mm-hmm. Cicero. They loved Cicero. Right. They loved Cicero. Oh, they loved Cato. In Cicero, fact, yeah. the initial title for my book was From Cicero to Snooky. <laughs> <laughs> and your editor nixed that? The editor nixed it for, for two reasons. Uh, one that was compelling at the time uh, and one that's more compelling now. But the, the one that was compelling at the time was that if you draw a Venn diagram of people who know who Cicero is and a Venn diagram of people who know who Snooki is, yeah, gonna, yeah. the overlap is just not there. You and me and, you and I, six right. people. Yeah, that's right. it. Yeah. So, they, so they made that good point. But yeah. now I came up with that title in 2010 or 11 when Snooki was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Now – she has departed from the scene, yeah. hopefully never to be seen again. Yeah. So right. uh, the, the title would have gotten dated very quickly. Yeah, no, I see. Absolutely. So these people read serious things. They thought of themselves as um, uh, uh, so children of the Enlightenment. They were, they were going to bring light to the world, and they had this uh, you know, so, uh, a city on a hill, and they were going to do all these things. Uh, did they read anything else? I mean, did they read novels? Or did they, I mean, there were novels at the time. I mean, you could read Pamela or you know, these number of different things. Um, there were some novels. You don't have a lot of in, in the historical record of mm-hmm. Jefferson and Adams reading them. Yeah. In fact, I have in the book. I don't remember the name of the novel, but Jackson said he only read one novel in his whole life. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and um, and and Lincoln also. I don't think this claim is true, but he also said he only read one novel in in his whole life. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think he re- he read more actually, but um, but the, the reason that, that you say this is because it just wasn't becoming for presidents to say right. they're reading novels. They mm-hmm. wanted to show that they were they were reading serious things, and and even you see this to some degree in our day that Bill Clinton devoured mystery books. Yeah, that's what he I would read three or four in a week. I mean, yeah. instead of sitting and watching TV, he would read a mystery novel, mm-hmm. which you know seems like a perfectly legitimate way to play spend an evening. Mm-hmm. But he didn't advertise that. Right. He advertised that he was reading. Serious books by scholars and mm-hmm. university people, and you know the, the Robert Kaplan book. I mean, he advertised his nonfiction reading, but he kept his his mystery reading as kind of dirty little secret. Yeah, that, that was his phrase, not mine. So somehow playing golf is okay, but reading mystery novels is not. That, that that's confusing to me. Yeah, but, I don't. <laughs> but but I, in fact, I talk about this whole phenomenon of uh, criticizing presidential vacations. Now, having worked in the White House, I don't begrudge presidents of no. either party their vacations, no. and I think there's a lot of hypocrisy on yeah. this part. So Republicans get very worked up when Obama takes a vacation, but Democrats used to get worked up when Bush took a vacation. Yeah, sure. I don't think you should get worked up no. in either ends. But I talk in the book about James Knox Polk, who is actually one of my favorite presidents. He said he was going to serve one term, one term alone, and he was going to get done three things, and he got those three things done. Wow. Now. <laughs> 
but right after, he, he worked like a dog in that period. He took no vacation. He told his cabinet not to take vacation. He didn't go to the theater or do any of the other external entertainments they had in the 19th century. And not long after he served, and he wasn't that old, he died. So man, there's some speculation that he kind of worked himself to death in, in his presidency. So I don't begrudge the president's no, vacation. No, not at all. But these people did read newspapers. And if I recall correctly, the history of newspapers, um, you know, parties themselves had newspapers. You know, like, didn't I, I think it was Washington who... Or maybe it was Jefferson. It was Jefferson, Jefferson. Jefferson had his own paper. For no, right. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Newspapers were, were very important in, in the in the 19th century. And um, it, we flash forward a little bit. Uh, McKinley was obsessed with newspapers. He would read multiple newspapers a day, including a couple from his home state of Ohio that he would have sent to him in Washington. And after he was shot, you know, he was assassinated, right. but he lived for a while. And one of the f- first things he asked for after being shot while laying up with a bullet in him was the newspaper. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so yes, newspapers right. were very important. And then I have to ask this, too. I remember when I was a kid, this, I must have been, I was in junior high or something, and they gave us this uh, speed reading course. I don't really believe in speed reading. But one of the things they told us was that John F. Kennedy yes. could read the whole New York Times in three minutes or something like that. Did you ever yeah. hear the story? Yeah, it is true. Yeah. John F. Kennedy took... Evelyn Wood's speed reading, not while president, uh-huh. but before he was president. But it was a bit of a joke because he, he listened to some of the tapes and he supposedly didn't really stick with it. Yeah. Uh, but Jimmy Carter did take a speed reading class with Amy, his daughter, while in the White House. Mm-hmm. And when he was being uh, – when right before the Malays speech, the famous speech where they yeah. talked about from uh, Christopher Lash's Culture of Narcissism, mm-hmm. he was being told – to read that book and to come out with this big speech and he said I'll speed read that and some others so he, <laughs> he kind of had a thing where he would speed read books and he did read a lot of books including kind of very 70s feeling books like Watership Down oh yeah Watership Down yeah it's actually a very violent book but so, so he, he, he would read a lot of stuff to kind of get the a sense of the zeitgeist uh, of the times he also watched a lot of movies 480 movies in a single term as president wow I know everybody immediately starts doing the math. It's 120 a year, and it's about two to three a week. It's a lot of movies. He really liked movies. Really escaping movies. You know the famous Woody Allen joke about speed reading, right? That Woody (laughs) Allen took a speed reading course, and he said, well, I took a speed reading course, and I read War and Peace. It's about Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Woody Allen, um, Jimmy Carter, during the worst part of the energy crisis, he saw Woody Allen's Manhattan twice in a three-week period. (laughs) Wow. So, all right, let's move on to the 19th century. Uh, Plays, the plays, the thing, um, these were very popular. And so so was public speaking, actually. People would go and see public speaking. As you mentioned, sort of in Puritanical or Puritan America, plays were not on. But then in the 19th century, it became a very big thing. Of course, Lincoln was shot while watching a performance. And so can you talk a little bit about um, presidents and, and performances? Yeah, if you think about it now, if a president or a politician wants to speak to the American people, they go on TV, right? right? Or they send out a tweet, and millions of people can see it at once. But there was no way to show your image to that many people back then. And what you would do is you would go to where the people had assembled to show yourself. And so presidents and politicians would go on these tours, kind of a meet and greet, get to know the people kind of tours, Mm -hmm. and they would show up at the local theaters, Mm -hmm. And I have a whole section about uh, President Monroe going to see a play in South Carolina because uh, Charleston was one of the theatrical capitals of the U.S. And so he went to different plays in Charleston because that's, that's where you could see the most people. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Jackson would go to plays and he would get all kinds of acclaim and cheers. And play is a an interactive medium to some degree because the 
actors can change what they're doing based on who is in the house and what the audience is seeing or, or how the audience is reacting. So I tell us one story after the contested 1824 election where John Quincy Adam, who may have been the best prepared person ever to be president in terms of both his education and also his pre-presidential mm-hmm. experience as a minister in, in multiple countries and speaker of multiple languages, he beat Jackson in the election but not he didn't get a plurality of the electoral vote or of the uh, popular vote in the election, but there was what was called the corrupt bargain where Clay, Henry Clay, threw his support to Adams, and the, therefore the two of them kind of defeated Jackson. Clay became Secretary of State. So Adams, who likes the theater, goes to the theater one night after this corrupt bargain has taken place, and the actors ad-lib some references to General Jackson – and the audience starts cheering all the references to General Jackson. Mm. Adams did not go to the theater nearly as much after that point. So, mm-hmm. right, right. So the play, the theater was a very democratic medium where you could get a sense of what the people were, and there were real appeals to the the people and the, the notion of American democracy, small d. And one thing I write about in the opening chapter is that the founders had this vision of enlightened leaders serving over an educated populace. And they did not realize how raucous the 19th century democratic ethos of America would be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Uh, and, and as we said, Lincoln was shot in a theater. Did he, were, they ever, were they really interested in the plays or were they just there to be seen? Uh, or do Lincoln we know? Lo- well, it depends on the president. But yeah. Lincoln loved theater. He didn't go much as a boy. He was obviously poor, but right. there wasn't that much where he was. But once he became president, he went often. And not only was he at the theater the night he died, but his son was at the theater in a different play, mm-hmm. seeing Aladdin. Really? A different theater nearby. And someone came into that other theater and said they have shot the president. Right. And his son returns to the White House with his driver, but has no idea what happened to his father, other than he was shot. He didn't know the, his father's disposition and didn't find out until the next morning that his father had tragically died. So going to the theater was a frequent occurrence. And John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Lincoln, had scoped out killing Lincoln at other possible theatrical venues. Mm-hmm. And there was one play that Lincoln was thinking of going to at the old soldier's home. And Booth was prepared to kill him if he had gone to that play, and he ended up not going that mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. I see. Remind me what play Lincoln was seeing, I don't recall. Our American Cousin. Our American Cousin. Not Is it, is it often uh, performed today? I, I don't think it, so. It, <laughs> it's really only performed as the play where Lincoln, where Lincoln was shot. Yeah. All right. Okay. And so, a lot of this stuff was, you know, a lot of the theater of the 19th century wasn't great. But yeah, no, I imagine. So anyway, it's you're just like a lot of the sitcoms of the 70s and 80s weren't great. It was just so, a, so if they were to make an action man out of a president, it would be Theodore Roosevelt, right? He was a, he was a man of action, right? But you have him in here as a great reader. He's a great reader. He loved to read. He talk a little bit about that. He loved to read books a, a day while yeah. president. Yeah. And if you walked into the Oval Office and you did not interest him or engage him, he might, he was apt to open a book in your presence <laughs> and start reading. He loved to read. He also he read in multiple languages. He read in German also. So wow. yeah, he, he's a huge reader, and he was influenced by books. And he had this thing where he would reach out to authors after he read a book if he found it compelling, and he would get to know the authors. One he did that was with uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who uh-huh. wrote one of the most famous books on on naval history. Right, that is a strategy. Yeah, that book is big. Yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, the, the most famous thing is with Upton Sinclair in the jungle. Mm-hmm. He reached out to Upton Sinclair and uh, found Upton Sinclair incredibly annoying. I have some very funny exchanges mm-hmm. with him in the book about how what a nag Upton Sinclair was once Roosevelt had reached out to him and probably regretted it. 
And also Israel Zangwill, who is a playwright and the author of The Melting Pot, got his ideas from the play, which was about assimilation of ethnic groups, from a speech by Roosevelt about assimilation. Then Zangwill writes this play. Roosevelt meets with Zangwill, and Zangwill was, was Jewish. It was very rare to have a Jewish representative at the White House or a Jew at the, at the White House. Mm-hmm. Says, but Roosevelt sure. with, went to the play, sat in the front, shouted, it's a great play, Mr. Zangwill, a great play. And those were lines that Zangwill used to help promote the play for the rest uh, of his life. Yeah, I wish Obama would say that about your book. It's a yeah. great <laughs> book, Tevi. It's a great book. I imagine that would appear on the back cover. They'd stop all printings and put that in. That know? would be pretty good. That would be yeah, good, yeah. That would be great. So um, Roosevelt, yeah, huge reader, but he also was president at the cusp of a new era. And he was the most filmed person in the entire world because he was the person yeah. at the time who, uh, who was a famous person while film was this new technology that was emerging. He also sent the first transatlantic radio message mm-hmm. to King Edward VII in 1903. He sent it across to, to England, obviously. And so after Roosevelt, I call Roosevelt the last reading president, not because other presidents haven't read afterwards, but because other presidents had more options. They could go to the movies with Roe Wilson. Had that, that famous review of a movie as a history written by lightning. Right. Uh, which, as I talk about in the book, is, in, is somewhat apocryphal. He probably didn't say it. And then in the 20s, uh, Calvin Coolidge at one point was on a train coming into Union Station, and there was a delegation waiting to meet him. And he stayed on the train until he finished watching his movie and then went and saw <laughs> the delegation. <laughs> and then obviously... Radio comes about right. after after that, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt was brilliant at the radio. Everybody knows about his fireside chats, which I talk about a fair bit in, in the book. But he became president in part because of his mastery of radio. He introduced himself to the American people via his speeches at the Democratic conventions in 1924 and 1928 in much the same way that Barack Obama introduced himself to the American people in the 1920 and the 2004 um, Democratic convention where he right. gave that brilliant, brilliant speech. At yeah. The oh, yeah. No, I remember. Yeah. So Roosevelt had obviously run for president as a a vice presidential slot in 1920, but he really kept himself out there in those 24 and 28 slots. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. Well, before we move on to him and the uh, era of kind of mass communications, I want to talk about uh, the president who I suppose is most like me in the sense that he was a pinhead. And uh, I use that in the most loving way. Woodrow Wilson. Was he the first president? Now, so presidents all write books before they're presidents now, right? I think Obama's written how many? I can't even remember. He, he's written. I don't know. He's real a library he's of got books. Some other books. Yeah, the guy's got books and books. So, uh, so, but Wilson wrote books, right? Wilson wrote books. He is the only PhD and two PhDs on yeah. this interview. Right. <laughs> the only PhD yeah. to be elected president, and only two people have run for president. The other was George McGovern. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. And. and Wilson, interestingly, even though he wrote some books and was a PhD in, in intellectual, he loved theater. Mm-hmm. So 250 plays while he was president. And Jesus. His, his favorite type of play was vaudeville. He loved vaudeville. Vaudeville. There you yep. go. Yeah. Uh-huh. Vaudeville. And he even had Al Jolson come to see him at the White House. <laughs> and he mentioned to Jolson that he had never before seen Jolson perform. And Jolson said right then and there in the White House, in front of Woodrow Wilson, he just busted out with his famous song, which was You Made Me Love You. Uh-huh. And just did a little soft shoe in front of the president, which is staggering. And I also, getting back to the the Jewish thing I I mentioned, that Jolson was Jewish. And I just could not I didn't know that. Really? Jolson was Jewish? Right. But I couldn't fathom 
a, a Jewish artist in England or in Germany or in Russia at the time doing the similar thing in no. front of the Kaiser or the no. Tsar or the Queen of England. No, that probably wouldn't. Would no. never happen. No, that would never So happen. it's because of the, the this democratic nature of, of America that's more open to, to different ethnicities back then and right. to different voices and different cultures. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a great country. I got a tear in my eye. Uh, Al Jolson. Yeah, that's true. Now, what did what – did, did Wilson like to read? Did he? I mean, was he a big reader? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in this question both of presidents writing books because they all write books now, and uh, and and reading. Was Wilson? He didn't seem to be that big a reader as president. Uh-huh. It seems like once he got his PhD, he coasted. Well, well, there you, yeah, he got tenure, um, and that was it. He, he didn't it seem over. to even read the newspapers he, that yeah. much. He, I mean, he loved theater. He didn't read a lot of books. He had a PhD. He knew all the answers. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember, he also had a stroke while he was president. Right. Oh, and, I didn't uh, know that. Is that right? right. Yeah, oh, and yeah. and in his uh, sickbed, I guess um, he used to have detective novels by uh-huh. himself. So uh-huh. he, he read a lot of, different, and that was early in the day of detective novels. It's mm-hmm. all like day when you know you go to an airport bookstore and there's thousands of, of mysteries. Right. And it was kind of it was early in the genre. Right. So you mentioned FDR. Let's go to FDR because he was the first, um, at least it, it, you know, again, and I'm an amateur at, at this, but it seems to me he's the first um, president to really take advantage of electronic mass communication. That, that he he knew how to do it, and can you talk a little bit about that? And how, what what did he consume as well? He absolutely did. He was great at using the radio, and he had a whole series of steps that he would do when he was giving his fireside chats. He used a special paper that would not rustle, so that people wouldn't hear the the movement of the paper from page to page when he was giving a speech. He had a tooth. Uh, sort of oh, like that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, kind of like yeah, that. Right, yeah, uh, right, it had yeah. sort of a, a fake tooth thing going on. <laughs> I don't have that paper. See, so yeah. there was a slight whistle <laughs> when he spoke, and he used this tooth, um, this special tooth that would prevent the whistling when he gave his radio addresses, so wow. that he wouldn't hear the slight whistle. And people think fireside chats. He must have been fireside chatting all the time. Right. But he actually carefully marshaled them, used them relatively rarely, only two to three times a year. And he said that he felt that Churchill uh, went on radio too often. So uh, FDR thought very carefully about how he used that medium of the radio. And it had a huge impact. Donald Rumsfeld, obviously a Republican, said that it almost felt like Roosevelt was a member of the family because he would appear on the radio all all the time. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you'd be sitting around eating dinner and you'd be listening to the president over the radio. We've tried to ban radio at our dinner table now. <laughs> no iPods at the dinner table. That's one of the rules we have. The um, it's a good rule. So, yeah, I think so too. Uh, if I could just get people to follow it, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So the um, who was the first president to have a movie theater put in the White House? That happened under Roosevelt. Uh huh. Right. Yeah, the White House uh, movie theater built, but it really expanded under Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Uh, under Eisenhower, they they hired a guy who was the White House projectionist. And this one guy, his name is Fisher, Paul Fisher. Mm-hmm. He served as the White House perfect, projectionist from 1953 to 1986. Three years. What a gig. And he wrote down every single movie that the president saw in wow. that period and who attended the movie with the president wow. for 33 years. Wow. And there's only one movie that we don't know who the president watched it with. It was a movie that John F. Kennedy watched. Uh-huh. We don't know who he saw it with, which leads to all kinds of yeah. arch speculation given uh-huh. Kennedy's habits. What was the movie? I don't recall. I don't recall. I see. Okay. But it's in the book. Did, did, um, so did FDR watch a lot of films? FDR watched some movies. He was actually the most filmed president at right. the time in terms of he's appeared in more movies than anybody else. But interestingly, never appeared in a movie 
as president in a wheelchair until uh, Pearl Harbor, the Michael Bay film of about, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Sunrise Camp- Campobello, which showed him before being president in the wheelchair, but mm-hmm. uh, carefully protected that image. Nobody really saw him in film as president in a wheelchair until mm-hmm. the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So let's take a little hiatus from film for a second and talk about music. Were there a common, I mean, these days, you know, uh, President Obama invites, I don't know, you 2 or Beyonce or somebody to come and perform in the White House, and they do. Uh, JC, yeah. I don't, it, it gets all yeah, kinds of, he gets anybody he wants. Right. Um, I can't get anybody. I call you <laughs> uh, So, <laughs> So when did this start, this, this sort of notion that um, that you should invite these artists and they should come perform for you? Well, it was very controversial for a long time because rock and roll in the 50s was subversive. Yeah. And in the 60s, Eisenhower and, and, and Truman didn't like it. Um, Eisenhower kind of grumbled when his children listened to Elvis songs in the 60s. So uh, rock, rock and roll was, was not only not fully popular among the American people, but it was seen as something that was kind of questionable. Mm-hmm. And so there, were, there was political danger to embracing it. Uh, Gerald Ford uh, danced to bad, 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 bad Leroy Brown. If you remember mm-hmm. that song yes. in the 70s uh-huh. at the inaugural, and, and uh-huh. there, was some, uh, there was some press criticism of that. Mm-hmm. Gerald Ford, the most athletic president of all time. Even though derided as a klutz, yes. Yeah, he, but he was definitely the most athletic president. Yeah, he was on University of Michigan championship team, and he was uh, looked at by two NFL teams. Well, he was a great basketball player, too, and then later in his life, he was a great skier. And a huge tennis player. Yeah, I didn't know that. See, so yeah, he was definitely the most athletic president. But He was, but he fell a couple of times, yeah, I know. And, and he Chevy banged Chase, his head once, and right. Chevy Chase mocked him on Saturday Night Live, which I talk about in the book. Yeah. That was also kind of groundbreaking. Yeah, right. Uh, so anyway, the 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 the, um, the the music thing. So so when does it actually start? You know, there's this fa- there are a couple of famous photos. One that people have probably seen is Nixon and Elvis. Everybody's seen this photo, yes, right? Classic so, photo. Can you explain the background of that? What is it? What happened? Well, there? <laughs> it's kind of a crazy story. Elvis wanted to be named some kind of ex officio agent of the Drug Enforcement Agency. <laughs> Because he thought that this would allow him to transport his narcotics without being hassled. So he tried to get a White House meeting. Nixon thought it might help bolster his popularity because uh-huh. all this, you know, 20 years ago he was subversive and they right. could show his hips gyrating. Sure. But, you know, by the 70s he was an icon. Mm-hmm. So he comes to the White House. Some people speculate that he was stoned at the time because there's that famous picture that is the most famous and requested picture from the National Archives, a famous picture of them. And people think that Elvis looks stoned in the picture. Is I that know. right? I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know how you could tell from a picture. I don't but, either, no. Yeah. But Elvis is wearing his crazy get up and right. uh, Nixon asks him about why he dresses like that and Elvis says to him you've got your show and I've got mine <laughs> that's a good answer you gotta it say was, that's a good answer it was, it was a good answer yeah. and then and then he um he got his badge, mm-hmm. his, his fake badge. Yeah. So, has anyone ever? Is, has any of these perform? Have any of these performances ever blown up? You know what I mean? Like they, they invite these. You know, and they're artists, right? These people are performing artists, and they're not. You know, Elvis is a good example. Sometimes they're not the most stable people, right? And so, to, have there ever been incidents involving? Yeah, them? there have been some incidents. Crosby, Stills, and Nash say that they smoked pot in the Oval Office. Yeah. Uh-huh. They won't say which one of Crosby, Stills, or Nash, but they say that they did it. Yeah. Willie Nelson said he smoked a big fat Austin torpedo on the mm. roof of the White House under Carter. Both these incidents. Mm-hmm. Were. Did he smoke it with Carter, or was it just just no? He didn't, but presumably the uh, Secret Service knew, and there was yeah. some right. joking about it between Carter and Nelson years later. Yeah, uh, you had Common was invited to the White House under Obama, mm-hmm. who was a rap 
I wouldn't call him a rap star because he's not that well known, but a rapper mm-hmm. had written some stuff suggesting about killing police and stuff like yeah, that. Right. So that was a bit, a bit of a blow up. So yeah, you have to be careful, but you have to be careful two ways because if you're president and you try and embrace a rock artist and then they reject your embrace, right? Yeah, that, that's that could, the interesting. Yeah. So in the 1984 re-election campaign, Reagan liked the song Born in the USA, or at least his campaign thought right. it was a good message for him. I doubt he was actually listening to it on his Sony Walkman. But uh, So Reagan's campaign embraced Born in the USA, and Springsteen was famously liberal, and they should have known that if they'd looked it up, because he was critical of Reagan as soon as he was inaugurated. He was, he was criticizing Reagan. But Springsteen rejected this and said that um, you know it's not great here in Pittsburgh, and he, he right. criticized Reagan for using, using the song. So there's been this kind of dance over the last 30 or so years where when a Republican president or presidential candidate tries to use a song to go out on stage or as their theme music, the usually liberal artists reject them. Mm-hmm. Whereas when a Democrat uses it as a theme song, they think it's great. So yeah. I think Fleetwood Mac and oh, yeah. Bill Clinton don't mm-hmm. stop thinking about tomorrow. Right. Not only did Fleetwood Mac not object to Clinton using the song, but the band, which had broken up, came back together to wow. play the song at Clinton's inauguration. Wow. Wow. So I talk about how there's kind of a, 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 a not fair view for, from the Republican perspective. If you want to embrace an, a musician, you'd better make sure that they're either country or dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, there's one exception to that I can think of, and that is that uh, Joey Ramone of the Ramones loved Ronald Reagan. Loved him. So they should have had the Ramones come and play at the White House. They could play Blitzkrieg, Bop, or you know, something like that. You don't think yeah, Reagan yeah. – yeah, well, yeah. well, the problem with that is that at the time, the Ramones were kind of cutting edge. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Reagan would have, would have embraced them. Now, yeah. you know, rock icons kind of have to grow and mellow yeah. for the most part. Until Obama, rap, for example, was verboten in the White House. Right. And this dates back – and it's just something I talk about in the book – the 1992 presidential campaign when uh, the, the Ice Cube's cop killer – was a cop killer, I should yeah, say, was out. And that was a big deal. And the Republicans were ripping on it. And they thought it put the Democrats in an uncomfortable spot. And Bill Clinton brilliantly kind of maneuvered out of this spot by his sister soldier moment. Oh, yes. Right. When he criticized his sister soldier, who was barely a rapper, I yeah, would say, right. or of an activist. Made she, her career. Right, or <laughs> ended her career. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But she, she said something about, well, we, they kill black people. Why don't we have a week where we kill white people? Oh, yeah. And... Bill Clinton got up there at this event where Jesse Jackson was and Sister Soldier was and says, Your, these comments do not honor you. Mm-hmm. And Jackson was angered. He was mad at Clinton. But this Sister Soldier moment has become iconic. And they mm-hmm. talk about how presidents can break away from the more radical elements of their party, whether it's Democratic or Republican, by saying something critical of the, the, what the radicals have said. I'm still thinking about Joey Ramone at the White House singing uh, <laughs> I Want to Be Sedated or it something. It would be pretty awesome. I don't know if Joey was the singer. I can't remember. But I don't even know if it was Joey that really loved Reagan, but one of them did. I remember that. Um, so, and now we can see what's on their iPod. Like that's a question that you said. What's on? Right. What's, 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 yeah. So, so what is? So, has that uh, ever helped anyone or hurt anybody by listening? Like this is what I'm listening to on my iPod. It hasn't really yet because Obama, as I said, was able to embrace rap in a way that no previous president has. Bush had country music on his iPod. Um, and now with the t- potential 2016 candidates, you're hearing a little bit about this. Marco Rubio, for example, likes um, hip-hop. And oh, yeah. Ryan likes heavy metal. So, oh, wow. 
They're trying to show that they're a little more up to date than, although heavy metal is not that up to date, but <laughs> right. they're trying to show they're a little more hip or different than, than the Republicans of a previous era. Okay. So yeah, this will become a standard question uh-huh. of what's on your iPod, what's on your playlist. Sure. So let's go back to movies for a second. Are there any movies that, I mean, you know, we, we have a lot, there's a big movie catalog. Has anybody ever looked at Netflix or Amazon streaming? And there are lots of movies that have been made. Are there sort of standards in the White House? Does everybody watch... I don't know, um, Citizen Kane or something, or The Deer Hunter. I don't know what they watch. Is there, like, repeated presidents of, like, yeah, I really like this movie? In other words, is there a safe political movie to say you like? Like, I like this movie. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, a Star Wars or something like, like yeah. that is, is safe. Um, Red Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about, about Red Dawn, <laughs> but um, uh, one of the movies you just mentioned was. Um, uh, so the Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter yeah. was a bit of a controversy between Reagan and Carter about um, the different, their different interpretations of the movie. And uh, Richard Grenier wrote a fascinating piece in commentary in 1980 about how he thought that Reagan had the better interpretation uh, of that movie and understood what the, what the movie meant to, to the American people better than, than Carter did. So the, there's some of that. Um, the, uh, the famous Gary Cooper movie, the Western... Uh, um, mm. Where he's the, the lone sheriff. Oh, um, you mean Twelve O'clock High? No, no High Noon. High, high Noon. Yeah, Twelve O'clock High. That's so a that High Noon yeah, was watched right. by multiple yeah. presidents. Yeah, high noon, and yeah. you could see how the sense of a lone gunman standing yeah. up against the world when when his friends are deserting him could appeal to to presidents. Uh, Bill Clinton mm-hmm. really liked that movie. Uh, uh, Reagan liked that movie. Uh, Eisenhower liked that movie. So, uh, so there, there have been multiple presidents who, who've watched High Noon, and that's kind of the safe movie to some degree. Shane, anybody ever watched Shane? You know, come back, Shane. That was a famous one. I, w- I would bet that Eisenhower did. I mean, he loved westerns. He watched westerns all the time. He watched them on TV. He yeah. watched them on. Um, he watched them in film. I mean, he just was a huge western guy. And interestingly, Mrs. Johnson liked. Um, like the Martian Dill- Marshall Dillon show, Gunsmoke. Oh, yeah, Gunsmoke, uh, sure. And she was upset when she found out that Miss Kitty, the actress, was a Republican. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, let me, let me ask, since you brought you got me back to Eisenhower, I want to go to Truman for a second because uh, Truman being from Missouri and everything. Not exactly a highbrow kind of guy. Never graduated from college. You know, he got his degree at the College of the Streets, I think, as they would say in rap, and World War One and all that business. And then um, – uh, can you tell us a little bit about his uh, predilect? Can yes. you talk a little bit about him? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, Truman was the last person who's been elected president who did not have a college degree. Right. And if you think about it, the last president who didn't go to either Harvard or Yale, or in some cases both, like George W. Bush, yeah. uh, was uh, Ronald Reagan. And the last president without a graduate degree was George H.W. Bush. Mm, so there's I definitely like this yeah. move towards uh-huh. higher education yeah. and going to elite schools. But Truman, as you say, did not have a college degree. Huge autodidact. Read yeah, a nope. ton. In fact, famously said that the only thing new in this world is the history that you have not read. Mm-hmm. He was constantly reading. <laughs> That's a good line. Yeah. That's a really good uh, line. It's a historian I knew yeah. you'd like that yeah. one. Uh, but yeah, he was constantly reading. His daughter would say that it might seem the world was coming to an end, and Truman wouldn't look up till he got to the end of his page. Right. Yeah. So right. He, he loved reading. He didn't like movies that much. Uh, he had a Florida vacation home, and, and they would show movies at night, but he wouldn't attend, and he would instead um, go re- read his books. Uh-huh. He loved history. He referred to it often. He had a great memory for uh, historical facts that he picked up in his reading. Uh-huh. Now, there was – I'm sorry. This is going to be really embarrassing because there is some association between uh, Truman or Eisenhower and opera, and it's somebody's daughter. 
What is it? Oh, um, I'm Truman's daughter, and, Truman's I, and daughter, I have a yes, pretty right. funny section about yeah, this. Right, but yeah. His daughter Margaret was a singer. Yes, right. Okay. And now, she now gave a performance that. once that was blistered yeah. in the Washington Post. And Truman, stupidly, and he admitted it was stupid, wrote on White House stationery a letter critical to the critic who had written this thing in the Washington Post, right. where he basically said that you'd need a, a black, you're going to get a black eye, you're going to need beefsteak for your eye or something right. like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the writer did not publish the letter, but somebody else saw it and transcribed it and gave it to another newspaper, not to the Washington Post. And the, the text of this letter got out and everybody said how inappropriate it was. And you had parents whose children were dying in Korea writing letters critical of yeah. Truman saying, you're worried about this and my son is in Korea. How mm-hmm. dare you? So, so that, that episode did not end well for Truman, and he, and he did regret it. But later, that same reporter or that same critic did visit Independence, Missouri, and he and Truman did a duet on the piano together. So <laughs> yeah, I guess they, right. they buried the hat. Truman, yeah, Truman, did, yeah, Truman was musical himself. He was. He's yes, a that's huge right. piano player, yeah. very talented. Yeah. And um, he he said that uh, he didn't become a professional musician because he just wasn't good enough. Right. And he really did love music. Right. That's interesting. So um, have there been any presidents in the sort of modern era who've had kind of highbrow tastes? I mean, we just mentioned opera. Uh, are, are, is there any that – is it possible to be a, a lover of, uh, you know, I don't know, um, modernist art or uh, sort of experimental opera or theater or, you know, I guess highbrow novels or anything? Is it possible to do that? Well, Obama does seem to like highbrow and somewhat obscure novels sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, but but I, I, I do think it's hard. I, I think if you show if you show up in your black tie and you go to the opera or the or the ballet, uh, I, I think you, you'd be criticized as not really understanding the, the needs of the regular people. Mm-hmm. So in presidents might do that a little more privately. I, I know I was at performances at the White House where you would have when when I served under George W. Bush, where you'd have either opera singer or ballet or Shakespeare, uh, but that was kind of private um, entertainment after White House dinners. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So some of that stuff goes on. Right. And the presidents do have access to the Kennedy Center and the, the president's right. box at the Kennedy Center, which right. I was happy and privileged to take advantage of when, when I served in the White House. Wow, that's cool. It was very, it was a great, great yeah. shtick. Uh-huh. Uh, but you, you really don't see a lot of presidents embracing the highbrow that much. Uh-huh, I see. So they do go to, uh, it seems like baseball games. Baseball, baseball. They, they like yeah. to go to baseball games. But what about basketball and football games? Do they ever go to those? Uh, well, there's a whole section in the book, by the way, about about baseball yeah. and Babe Ruth, who yeah. was the biggest star in America right. of any form in, in his period in the 20s and 30s, and how he met or corresponded with every president from Wilson through Truman. And he also met George H.W. Bush when George H.W. Bush was the captain of the Yale baseball team. Uh-huh. Uh, basketball. Uh, Obama's a big, big basketball fan. Oh, I know. I used to I, play with him. You know that. Do I, I did not that? know that. I did. I but, used to play with Barack. Yes, I did. When he was just Barack. Well, he's, uh, uh, he, he's, got, he, he's, got, he's got no left hand. If he, you uh, listen no right to hand, his podcast with Bill Simmons, which he was also the first president to do a podcast, yeah. but, uh, he knows an incredible amount about basketball. Yeah, he was talking about second-level NBA teams, their yeah. benches five, six, seven deep. I, I, was, yeah. I, I was shocked at how yeah. much basketball he knew. Yep. Uh, Nixon loved football, mm-hmm. and he used to send plays to the Redskins. And one time, George Allen used one, and it was a disaster. <laughs> and Art Bookwald wrote, Art Bookwald wrote that George Allen, the coach of the Redskins, could make the Hall of Fame if only he stops using plays yeah. sent in by Richard Nixon. Right, right. Um, so, that, yeah, but you, again, I think there's this. Um 
bias toward baseball. I really do. I, they, I see you see them at base. They throw at the first pitch, right, or something like yeah. that. And but not a lot of basketball, and not a lot of not a lot of football. Baseball scene is the American game. And yeah, yeah. I guess that's right. Also, there's a lot of bad. Be- I was going to say there's a lot of bad behavior in football and basketball, but now there's a lot of bad behavior in baseball, and I think there always has been. We just don't. Yeah, it, it's true, but it seems like the. The bad behavior in, in baseball is – it seems to me of a slightly different character. I mean the, mm-hmm. the cheating scandals yeah. is, is one thing. But you know, actually harming other people like you saw that uh, the, the tight end on the on the Patriots recently did him shot somebody yeah. <laughs> or killed somebody. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it just seems like a, a worse right. type no, of behavior. Worse. It's true. So um, swimming pools, swimming pools and bowling alleys in the White House. Talk to us a little bit about those. Yeah, uh, I don't want to talk a ton about this. Yeah, book, but I just was interested but, because we were talking. But about it, it is interesting. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the White House pool. You know, you talk about the press pool. Is, is right. It was named that because they're located above where the White House swimming pool was, and uh-huh. Roosevelt used to like to use the the, the swimming pool. Uh, bowling. There is a bowling alley. I believe it was put in by Richard Nixon. Nixon. That's right. Nixon was a bowler. There's a great, great story once where Nixon is at Camp David and he's wearing athletic clothes and he walks into the room and Kissinger sees him and says, what did you shoot? And Nixon says, 130. And Kissinger says, your golf game is improving, Mr. President. And Nixon says, I was bowling, Henry. Yeah, well, Henry, a little out of touch there. That's right. So we mentioned the most athletic president, that is Gerald Ford. He did everything. Again, I didn't know that he was a great tennis player. He was. He used to play with professional level people. He would have a regular doubles game. Rumsfeld used to participate. There's some great pictures in Rumsfeld's book of before them playing tennis. There's a famous photo. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I think that it's a famous photo of an aircraft carrier in World War II, and it shows guys playing basketball on one of the elevators that takes the planes up. And the guy who is going up for the shot is Gerald Ford. I don't know if anybody, any of our listeners has seen this photo, but I was just amazed. It's this black and white photo of an aircraft carrier kind of from a distance, and you see these guys playing basketball. It's very American, you know, and it's Gerald Ford playing basketball. But he was a skier, and he, I guess, tennis and then basketball, and then he was a great football player. Did he go to football games? He, he was a big football fan. Yeah. Uh, I don't recall any great stories of him going to football games, but I do recall uh-huh. a great story of Donald Rumsfeld going to a football game. It's uh-huh. in Rumsfeld's memoir, and I talk about it a little bit in the book. There was something that was called the Halloween Massacre mm-hmm. in about 74 when they uh, switched oh, yeah. chief this. of staff yeah. uh-huh. and the defense secretary, and mm-hmm. this is how Dick Cheney became White House chief of staff and Rumsfeld became uh, defense secretary. Well, the word – it was on a Sunday. They, they were making this plan, and the word got out that Newsweek had the story. And so they were upset that Newsweek had the story. They were going to go with it. But at the time, that meant that the story wouldn't print until the following Sunday. Mm-hmm. You didn't have an internet back then. Right. And so Rumsfeld said, okay, we'll deal with it. But then he went off to see a Redskins game because it wasn't so immediate a problem because Newsweek couldn't print for another week. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I see what you mean. So um, I want to talk about one thing in, in a little bit of depth. I mean, we're almost out of time, but – you, you read a lot, and you especially read a lot during the Reagan presidency about the impact of movies on him and his impact on the movies, especially the impact of the movies on him. Can you talk a little bit about Ronald Reagan's relationship with the movies? Because it seems, you know, the one thesis, and I think it's a largely liberal thesis, is that he sort of put himself in, in this Western frame and thought of himself as, um, I don't know, Gary Cooper or somebody, and, and that, that, that somehow almost subconsciously his, his decisions were guided by these popular cultural tropes. Is there any truth to any of this? 
Yeah, I think that's a little overstated. Yeah. But Reagan did understand movies and liked to use movie references. He, he referenced uh, the Clint Eastwood tough guy, um, or Dirty Harry. Uh, he had that Rambo reference that, uh, that I mentioned earlier. He, he did see a fair bit of movies, but near, not nearly as many as Carter. And he didn't see as many modern movies as Carter. In fact, he told Paul Fisher, this White House projectionist guy, that the golden oldies are the ones. He liked mm-hmm. his older movies. Whereas Carter told Fisher that he initially that he wanted to see just family-friendly, Christian-appropriate movies. Mm-hmm. And Fisher said, you're not going to see a lot of movies that way. And so Carter changed his tune and then just saw pretty much everything. Right. Yeah, I see. Is, is there any way for presidents – you know this because you've been in the White House. Is there any way for the president to actually watch things privately? I mean, Absolutely, you, especially now. Right. So basically they can actually go in a room and they can watch something and nobody will know about it. Yeah, to the extent that nobody knows about anything, right? I mean, right. you know, these, these days there's a digital signature. Right, so exactly. But previously something. in the White House screening room, it was going to get out. Am I right uh, about that? Well, they kept a record of it. It didn't necessarily come out at the time uh-huh. unless the White House press office wanted to. Uh-huh. And that's a really important point. What we know about presidents is a reflection of what they are willing to share with us. Uh-huh. So Ronald Reagan read a lot more books than most people think. Mm-hmm. And at one point he was reading a fairly serious book and Marlon Fitzwater, who was his press secretary, said to him, you know, it might do you some good if we let it get out that you're reading this book, tell people about this, this book you're reading and it might change your image. And he said, I don't think we need to do that, Marlon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And he was happy to stick with this image of him as a regular guy who watched movies and watched TV like everybody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, perhaps as a final topic, the president as a critic of popular culture, because it's often the case that you find critics of popular culture, especially where, I mean, there's been kind of a slide, even in my own lifetime, toward uh, what we might call um, per- permissive uh, sort of cultural um, artifacts. And, and what I'm talking about is they become a little bit, well, I don't know, there's more nudity, there's the language is spicier, the topics are um, obviously much more adult. Um, I, th- I think there's no doubt that this has happened. And there have been people that have opposed this in various ways. Again, in my own lifetime, people have said, you know, this has just gone too far and so on and so forth. You mentioned Sister Soldier. Um, have there been other instances in which presidents have said, you know, uh, there's something wrong with our popular culture because it's doing X? Yeah, absolutely. And this has come up in, in multiple White Houses. The, the, one of the most famous stories, and my advice to presidents on this, is to tread lightly when criticizing the popular, popular culture, especially because it's become so accepted and permissive now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a story in the George W. Bush administration when Dan Quayle got up and gave a speech about Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. Murphy yeah. Brown intentionally, consciously had a child uh, of wedlock and Quayle criticized that. And uh-huh. this became a huge deal with people fighting back and forth on both sides of the aisle. And uh, at one point, Bush was giving a press conference with Prime Minister Mulroney. And one of the reporters asked about this subject. And at the end of the press conference, Bush was overheard saying to Mulroney, say, I know, I told you people were going to ask about this crazy subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it, it became a big deal. Um, Bush and Barbara Bush also criticized The Simpsons, which at the time, you know, now it's having its 25-year anniversary coming up. But at the time, it was kind of cutting edge. And Barbara Bush and, and Bush didn't seem to like it much, and they said so. And I say in the book, you know, never, never argue with people who have you know, the old thing that you don't buy. Um, you don't criticize someone who buys ink by the barrel. Don't criticize people. I say, <laughs> I say sell photons by the megapixel yeah, or right. something like that. Yeah, and right. they had this unbelievably cutting line where um, Bush said, 
that I'd like popular culture to be more like the Waltons or families on TV to be more like the Waltons. And Bart Simpson said on TV, we are just like the Waltons. We're waiting for the depression to end, Yeah, right. which was a dig at Bush's um, economic policy. So things had gone a long way. Uh, only 30 years earlier, uh, I talk about it in the book, that Eisenhower said he wouldn't watch any movies with Robert Mitchum because Mitchum had been arrested for possession of marijuana. Right. Now, could you imagine today if President said, I won't listen to any music or watch any movies if the, if yeah. the artist has been involved in drugs? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, no Iron Man movies for you, Mr. President, because of uh, Robert Downey's troubles, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, things have changed a lot, but, uh, but I think presidents have to tread lightly uh, mm-hmm. in this sphere. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you another question. Uh, this is just sort of scattered questions that occur to me, like drinking, drinking and drugs. Uh, we know how presidents handle drug use. Uh, generally, they say that they uh, – well, what do they say now? I mean, well, Obama. That's a good question. Something, yeah. and it's also something I, I talk about. Yeah. So I have this extreme stance that I don't know how extreme it was, but the stance that Eisenhower took, saying, "I know I won't even watch movies if a guy did drugs." Mm-hmm. Whereas right now, our last three presidents, we know with some degree of certainty, have tried drugs to some degree. Mm-hmm. So Clinton says he didn't inhale. Right. And Bush says, "When I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible." And Obama says in his memoir that he did quote a little blow. Yeah. So and and he was a famous um, uh, toker of marijuana back uh-huh. in his his Hawaii days right. with the Chum Gang. So, right. um, it, drug use has been accept, become acceptable in a way among our politicians that it, that it never was in the past. Right. Well, that's what they do at Ivy League schools, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, that's the conclusion you might draw. The uh, so, so what about drinking in the White House? Um, you know, drinking it's it's a it's a you know it's a it's a legal thing to do. Um, have there been presidents that have been critical of boozing or a booze too much and it got out or anything like that? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting stories on this. One, one is uh, in David Marinus's history or biography of Bill Clinton. He says that Bill Clinton, when he was a young politician in Arkansas, went to a fundraising dinner and he drank too much, mm-hmm. and his political consultant said to him, "You don't have the capacity to drink and do this. You better not." drink if you're going to be mm-hmm. this kind of politician and uh clinton just st- pretty much stopped drinking after that mm-hmm. and he'll have he'll have a sip or two but he, he won't drink right. uh, wow. a lot and then the other story is about nixon during the watergate days was famously kind of drunk and uh, there was one time during the uh you know, the, the watergate was a big problem at the same time as the yom kippur war when israel's existence was threatened and in the book nixon and kissinger by robert dalek he talks about how uh, Nixon was called or the White House was called by the Israeli ambassador saying we're in danger of being overrun and they wouldn't put Nixon on the phone because he was probably too drunk. Mm-hmm. And so Kissinger took, took the call instead. So, so there, there's those kinds yeah. of stories. Yeah. But I have a great story in the book about this where I talk about how during the Monica Lewinsky scandal – presidents didn't just watch TV, they had become TV. So any channel you turn to, you would see the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And Clinton, Hillary, and Terry McAuliffe go away on a little vacation to get away during the scandal, Mm -hmm. and they try to watch TV. And Hillary's clicking the channels, and every darn channel has Lewinsky on it. Mm -hmm. And she's getting madder and madder, and she finally comes to a channel that doesn't have Lewinsky, and it's ESPN. (laughs) And she doesn't like much sports. Yeah. She doesn't sport, like sports much, but she sticks with, with that channel. Mm-hmm. And then later in that same vacation, the White House steward comes around and asks if anybody would like some wine. And Bill says, no thanks. And Hillary says, no thanks. And McAuliffe says, I'll take the bottle, please. <laughs> yeah, right. So another habit people, Americans used to have, I don't know, these, a lot of them still have it, smoking. So Obama smokes or did, right? Is it possible to be elected as a smoker anymore or is that just over? 
Well, obviously, Obama does. He keeps it kind of quiet. But, yeah, I I mean, I guess you could be elected as a smoker, but you kind of have to keep it quiet. Yeah, right. And you you bear the risk of the the Surgeon General or the HHS Secretary criticizing you if you do it. Right, right. Well, you know, he has his wife pitching healthy food so i suppose it all balances out so that that's a that's a that's a good thing whereas bush's wife laura supposedly smoked oh is that right i didn't know that that's interesting um yeah that's that's an interesting thing and then let's talk a little bit about religion something you know a little bit about here uh all all, do all presidents go to church they have they all i mean are there any presidents like i don't think i'm gonna go there is a church about a block from the white house i can almost see it from my office window here uh that that I think just about every president for at least the last hundred years has uh-huh. gone to, and that, that's where they attend services. And if there's a 9-11 memorial or something like that, yeah. they, they go there. Uh, obviously, every president has been Christian, uh, one Catholic. Mm-hmm. So at this point, you know, right. if Romney had won, there, there was a Mormon, and, and yeah. if Lieberman had won, we would have had a Jewish vice president. But right. thus far, we've not had that much variation yeah. in religions. But there is a lot of association with presidents and the Bible. Oh, okay. They talk ahead. about it in yeah. the book. Uh, Jimmy Carter read the Bible a great deal in, in his youth and, and talks about his, his knowledge of the Bible. And interestingly, when Kennedy was shot, there was no Bible on Air Force One at the time. Uh-huh. And... Johnson was sworn in, not with a Bible, but with a missile, which is a form of Catholic yes, prayer. Yes, right, a missile, yeah. Wow. And that, that seemed like it would be the, you give rise to a lot of conspiracy theories. It was a big deal. <laughs> it's got some play over the years. But Gerald Ford, at one point, he was on Air Force One, and he noticed this absence of the Bible. And he demanded that a, I don't know if he demanded, he's a nice guy, he requested, yeah. <laughs> asked that a Bible be put on Air Force One. And it was done. And since then, there's always been a Bible on Air Force One. Mm-hmm. I see. There's this story about, I read this a long time ago. I don't know if it's true. I have a very favorable um, impression of Eisenhower because he, like me, is a Kansan or at least an honorary Kansan. But apparently, when he uh, was elected president, he didn't really have a religion. He, he, he like hadn't been to church for so long, nobody knew. And so they cooked up one for him, and they decided to make him an Episcopalian. Is that true? Do you know anything about that? Uh, that, that is a good story. I, I actually don't know that. One. Yeah, I, don't, I just I heard that he really just could. You know, he didn't running World War II on the in the Western Front. Just, it didn't allow him time to think about God very much. So when he got elected, he was like, okay, he'll be an Episcopalian. That'll be fine. That, that could be wrong. Please, if you uh, if you if that is wrong, you you uh, listeners can. Um, you can write me and tell me. Um, so, well, and, and let me just say to the listeners of New Books Network, this is how Marshall and I got to know each other because Marshall slightly misidentified a quote once, yeah, and right. I yeah. found him. I emailed him, and I that's said, right. "You know, here's the correct use of the quote." And he emailed me back and said, "Would you like to be hosted?" That's right. So Network, you, so. you correct me, and you might get to be a host on the New Books right. Network and talk to all these smart people like Tevi. So, the final thing that I want to ask you about before I ask you what you're working on now is this movie about Hillary Clinton because this seems to me right in your terrain. Um, you know the movie I'm talking about. Of course. Yes. Right? I don't CNN know, and NBC. I don't know very much about this movie, but it is apparently a biographical movie. It's about her, yes? Yeah. Right. Okay. So I guess my question is this. The Repub- Some Republicans have come out saying we're going we're gonna to boycott. <laughs> They're going to boycott the movie or somehow. Are the Republicans handling this right? And isn't it the case that this could do as much harm as good? Yeah, I think what's going on with the Republicans is a lot of Republicans were frustrated with the debate process last time, and they feel that the Repu- a lot of Republican candidates were caught on tape saying a lot of things that they might not say to an audience when you know you move right for the primaries and you move to the center for the general, just like the Democrats move left for the primaries and, and uh, right. to the center for the general. So I, I think Republicans are trying to find a way to maybe 
shrink the number of debates or control the venues a little bit better. I know there was a lot of frustration that George Stephanopoulos, who was a Clinton White House aide, hosted one of the right. debates. And yeah. so I, I think Republicans are trying to say, let, let's get a little more control over the, this process because they don't have any – they haven't had control thus far because usually if some media outlet says we're going to do a debate, mm-hmm. then if any one of the candidates says yes, then the other – six or five or ten risk being empty chairs on that stage and right. they don't want to be embarrassed. Yeah. So I think the RNC is trying to say we're going to take care of this and you all work through us and we'll tell you which debates are, are approved and don't go to the unapproved debates. So right. that you, you, know, you don't have 25 debates but you might have ten more controlled environment debates. Uh-huh. Have you seen so I think the movie is kind of separate. Yeah. Have you seen the movie? The movie doesn't exist yet. It doesn't exist yet? I didn't know that. I thought it had been made. No, they were, they were talking about making a and, um, oh, I didn't know that. Huh. It's there. How do you like that? I'll well, see. I'm uninformed. There you go. So anyway, Tevi, I want to thank you very much for um, uh, talking with us today about your book, What uh, Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. I want to close with our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, right now, I'm in the midst of a big publicity tour on the book. As uh-huh. I said, this is the, uh, the first uh, podcast interview. And so I'm going to be doing that for a little while. And then I'm looking at a... Another possible book about uh, disasters and how we as a society deal with them. I said, oh. I said I used to work at uh, HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, right, yeah. and I looked a lot at um, the Hurricane Katrina disaster mm-hmm. and bioterror and avian flu. Mm-hmm. It seems like there have been a lot of big blow-ups in recent years, and mm-hmm. so I'm looking mm-hmm. at writing something on that. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really interesting. I hope you come back on the show. I really do because it's, it's really a treat to, to talk to you. I mean, it's, it's just been a lot of fun. It's been great. Uh, it's a real good to be on this side of the <laughs> yeah, right. and um, and thank you so much for doing this. On the website for the book, www.whatjeffersonread.com, there's lots more in the book. Okay. All right. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.